Well, good morning once again. I feel like I say good morning a lot. It's better than good evening, I guess. Uh, today we are in Titus. We're continuing our study through Titus, uh, empowered for change. Um, so we're just going to read what we got here. It's uh, chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. For there are also many rebellious people, full of empty talk and deception, especially those from Judaism. It is necessary to silence them, for they overthrow whole households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. One of their very own prophets said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. So rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of men who reject the truth. To the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and disqualified for any good work. The word of the Lord. I've been struggling uh, this week, like, you know, from, from somebody who studies the Bible and loves theology and loves history and all these things. I can sit and break down these verses, and I have, and it's, it's fun for me to do that. And then I think about preaching on them, and I'm like, ugh, because they're not fun. Like, this isn't one of those sections of Scripture that you grab and, you, you know, you, you bring it out at your prayer group and everybody's like, yay, let's read the God's Word. And then you're like, they're detestable, defiled, and unfit for any good work. And you're like, yay, go positivity. But it's still the Word of the Lord. I got into that habit years ago of when I finished reading saying the Word of the Lord. Because it reminds me that no matter what I'm reading in God's Word, it's, his word. It's the word of the Lord. Whether I like it or whether I don't, whether I agree with it or whether I don't, whether it's one of those things that makes me go, oh, this feels so nice and I feel warm and fuzzy and I just want to post this on my Instagram or I don't. It's still his word and we don't shy away from the word of the Lord. I want to break this down into four sections. We're going to kind of go through them verse by verse. So the first section is uh, verses 10 and 12. And it's that false teachers teach falsely. And it's kind of a no-brainer there. False teachers teach falsely. But we have to remember that with this section in, in Titus, with Scripture in general, we don't read things in isolation. Like So what we're reading now ties directly to what Mark talked about last week. Last week, Mark talked about the fact that as Christian leaders, what we should be looking for as Christian people, what we should be looking for is that godliness is attractive, godliness is powerful, and it is to be desired. So we understand that, we have that frame of reference, and then we go into looking at this. And what we have is a real-world example. Now that, that, that we're clear on what a godly leader is and what godly people are, we get to look at a real-world example of what we do with that. So first is false teachers teach falsely. And our first point is this, is as God's people, we need to be able to identify false teaching. These false teachers specifically, what did they teach? They, teach, they taught that you had to adhere to a Jewish way of life. That yes, Jesus was enough to get you saved, but now that you're, you're saved, you've got to do all these things. And it falls under this big umbrella of, uh, of adhering to a Jewish way of life. Adhering to the principles of Judaism, which was dietary rules. So you, you could eat certain things and you couldn't eat certain things. No bacon. That's a problem. 
No shellfish, which I'm okay with because I'm deathly allergic. But it was this idea that certain foods made you clean and unclean. Asceticism, which is a big word, just means don't touch certain things. That the, by the way you touch and don't touch and, and interact with the world around you, that that makes you pure and holy and good in God's eyes. This is what the Pharisees were talking to Jesus about when they said, like, your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. It wasn't a hygiene thing. It was an asceticism thing that, oh, this made me pure because I washed my hands a certain way. Observance of festivals, Sabbaths and new moons and Yom Kippur and Jubilee, things that the Jews throughout their history had struggled with keeping themselves. All of a sudden they were saying, now you have to do this. And circumcision, which is just a physical sign that you belong to the covenant. You see, Judaism was not contextual. Okay? Christianity, the gospel, is amazingly contextual because we focus on the person of Jesus Christ. And then he changes worlds and civilizations. Those were the things that you had to do to be an Israelite. They were commands from God to Moses. We don't disagree with that. What the people were teaching was generally true, that if you wanted to be part of God's covenant people, Israel, that's what you had to do. But that's not the way it works anymore. Colossians 2.14 says that, canceling the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. What was required... External observance is no longer required because Jesus has nailed that to the cross. Romans 10.9 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you do that, you are part of the new covenant, the new agreement. These people were trying to take an old agreement and put it on a new group of people. But that's not what God was doing anymore. Instead, he had created a new covenant, a new agreement. And this wasn't something out of the blue. He announced this generations ago through the prophet Jeremiah. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. That's the new agreement. That's the new covenant that we get with Jesus. Anything that tells you you have to do something in addition to putting your faith in Christ is false teaching and needs to be rejected. Now, false teaching is bad enough. But Paul is clear here that they weren't just being false teachers. They were doing it for money. One is, is bad. The other is horrible. And this is not something that's absent in our own time, and I think we all know that. There are many who pervert the gospel for dishonest gain. I won't name names. I'd like to, but I won't. And I'll explain why in a few minutes. The antidote to false teaching is found in the next two verses. Because as God's people, we need to know truth And why we speak the truth. It's not just enough to be able to identify false teaching. As God's people, we need to know the truth. And we need to know why we speak the truth. This is both silencing false teachers and proclaiming the truth. 
Because when we do this, we do just like God has done. I'm reading through the, the, the minor prophets right now, and what you see is, if you just look at it from one perspective, it can look really harsh. Like God's always like, you people are doing this, and you're doing this, and you're doing this, and you're doing this. And it feels like he's just pounding them into the sand. But then you get to the end of those books, and the vast majority of the time he says, I'm doing this so that you'll return to me. That punishment from God is never just for the sake of punishment. It's always so that his people will turn back and see the truth and acknowledge it. We silence, rebuke, and correct falsehood so that those who believe it will know the truth. First Timothy, or First Timothy Titus 1.13 says, Rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith. We correct falsehood so that the truth will be known. Any other motivation is wrong because we are calling people to repentance and reconciliation. We're to be reconciled to God and reconciled to one another. It is so that we will be sound in the truth. Not so you can say, oh, I told them. Did you see what I, do you see what I said to them? Oh, I'm so smart. No, it's so that they will know the truth and be sound in the faith. It's got nothing to do with you except that you're doing it for the other person. And here's where we have to be careful. Is false teachers are not the enemy. Okay? False teachers are not the enemy. False doctrine, false teaching, hypocrisy, deceit, these are the enemies. We have to be careful not to make false teachers the enemy because God cares about that person. He wants them to know the truth so that they will be sound in the faith. We, we, it's easy for us to do as humans, and I am so guilty of this. Uh, I was watching a football game last night. I won't say who. Go Vols. Um, <laughs> you know, if anybody watched the game. Uh, but my resting heart rate was like 113. I, my watch told me. It was like, whoa, what's going on? Do you need to record exercise? <laughs> Maybe. I need a melatonin. Um, it's easy, right? Like, I want the Vols to win. We're big Tennessee fans in my house. We want the Vols to win. But that doesn't mean I hate Alabama. I might say I do. But I don't actually hate Alabama or Alabama fans. I just want them to know the truth. <laughs> it's an important distinction. Right? We correct falsehoods so that people will know the truth. We can't make the person the enemy. There's this great story about, um, oh, I can't remember his name now. He's a bishop in South Africa after the atrocities. I can't remember his name. Thank you so much. I'm like, it's right there somewhere. So there's this story about, like, after the atrocities and everything, he's put in charge of this committee, and they're trying to find, like, the people who were guilty of, like, these prisons who were just vile and brutal to the prisoners for no other reason than the fact that they looked different. They had different skin color, so these people were violent towards them. And he's put in charge of this, this committee to try to figure things out, and what he has to wrestle with is, are they the enemy or are their acts the enemy? Is sin the problem? So he like gave them the option to like, do you honestly repent of the things that you've done? Because he realized that you, we have to make this distinction between what the enemy is and who the enemy is and who the enemy is not. 
The motivation is important there when we're rejecting falsehood. It makes all the difference. Now, this requires a knowledge of truth in the way of righteousness. It requires an understanding of truth because to rebuke or silence false teaching requires that you have an understanding of the topic. It presupposes you know how to handle the word of God. When we read Titus, there are two very important things to remember when reading Titus. One, it was written to Titus. Like he was the first one to get this letter. So he's reading it and going, okay, this is what Paul says. Oh, I get that. That makes perfect sense. We're reading and trying to figure out what did Titus know? Like what is the word of God saying? How do we apply this in our own time? But Titus didn't have any of those issues. He just received the letter and understood it. This is because Titus was not a new believer. Titus was not someone unfamiliar in the way of righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 tells us that Titus had a history of working with churches with bad or twisted doctrine. He was sent by Paul because he was the man for the job. He knew what he was doing. He had uh, encountered this type of false teaching before. He had been pressured. In uh, Acts, it tells us, if it was Acts or Galatians, I'm sorry, I can't remember off the top of my head, but that Titus, they were trying to get him to get circumcised, and he was like, no, I don't need to do any of that. Faith in the Son of God alone is all I need. He knew how to rightly handle the Word of God. Now, we have to ask the question, like, we don't have the, the, the luxury of traveling with Paul. And to be honest, like, I don't know that many of us would enjoy it. Not just because it was difficult, but, like, Paul was, he's intense. Like, if you just read Paul for just, like, reading Paul and, like, okay, I'm not looking for, like, big theological principles. Who is Paul? You'd be like, wow, this dude was intense. He needed a vacation. So how do we know the truth? We know the truth because we have the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The Bible does not claim to be a helpful book. The Bible does not claim to be a science book. The Bible does not claim to be a self-help book. The Bible doesn't, it talks about a lot of these things. It doesn't claim to be a history book, even though it records history. It doesn't claim to be any of these. It claims to be the word of God given to us for revelation of who he is and what we need to know about him. That's the purpose of the Bible. Now, we have to rest, though, in the fact that it's reliable. There's a lot of ways we can do that. A couple of quick points are when you compare New Testament manuscripts, they match up 99.5% of the time. And this is over the course of 20,000 New Testament manuscripts. And we have some small manuscript pieces of the Gospel of John going back to A.D. 100 or 150. These are like some of the first copies of anything that was written. We can go back and read and see that the Bible has been studied and shown to be an accurate record of what the original authors wrote. That means we can trust what we read as what was meant to be read. J.P. Moreland says, Faith is relying on what you have reason to believe is true and trustworthy. Like, you can, you can disagree with what the Bible says, but we have reason to believe that it says what we're supposed to believe it says. A side note, uh, this one comes up quite often, and I just thought I'd throw this out there because I heard it even this week. Uh, if you ever hear somebody saying, oh, the Bible was written at the Council of Nicaea, it was 100% false. You can just get rid of that. They didn't talk about the canon of Scripture at Nicaea. They talked about uh, Arminianism, uh, Arianism. But we study these things so that we know the truth and that we can read the Bible and go, okay, this is what it says. 
We need to know what the Bible says, believe what it says, and then teach people what it says so that they'll be sound in the faith. We can't shy away from the truth. Because there is truth. Truth is important. And that's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now we're doing good. This is just the first half of the section, right? This just tells us that there's false teaching. How do we identify it? What do we do about that? Why is the truth important? But it doesn't stop there. It goes on to tell us two things about ourselves as well. Verse 15, to the pure, everything is pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In fact, both their mind and their conscience is defiled. What does this tell us? That our heart is revealed by our interpretation of life. As God's people, we need to understand that our heart is revealed by the way we interpret life around us. If your heart is true and your desire is Christ and his righteousness and his holiness, that's going to be revealed by the way you do things. If you have falsehood and deception, then that's going to come out too because you cannot hide what's in you. It will come out. You know, they've done studies and they've shown that like a, a person in a, in a relationship who's always accusing the other person of something is usually the one guilty of that thing. That's because the truth is in you and it's going to come out. And when it does, it can either come out and lead to life or it can come out as a perversion of the truth and keep you in bondage. But you have to choose what you do with that. We have to make that choice. But our heart is revealed by our interpretation of the, by the way we interpret life around us. And lastly, from verse 16, that uh, our faith and our works must match. It says, they claim to know God, but deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Our faith and our works must match because one informs the other. Just like our heart is revealed by our interpretation of life, our faith is revealed by our works. The way you drive, the way you grocery shop, the way you interact with your spouse, with your kids, with your boss, your employees. If you claim to know God, then, then do our actions reflect our claims? Or are we teaching something different than what we actually believe? In the secret place, does our faith show? Paul says to Titus that these false teachers claim to know God, but their actions disprove. Right? Our actions and our works must match. We read James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Suppose a brother or a sister is without daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical need, what good is it? Like if you're saying you have faith, but when the time comes for you to put your faith into action, you do nothing, then what faith do you actually have is what James is saying. That's not me. That's the word of the Lord. That when, the, when push comes to shove, if, if on Sunday you're standing here and you're singing and you're raising your hands and hallelujah, glory to God, and then you go to small group on Wednesday and uh, Thursday, Monday, Tuesday, whatever night yours is, and you're like, oh, praise Jesus, God's so good, I'm so grateful for God, yay, yay, yay. And then you go home and you tell your kids, you stupid little brat, what would you do now? Then does that match what you're saying you believe? No, you're false teaching around you. Your faith and your works have to match. They will always match. God does that for a reason so that we can look in the mirror of ourselves and go, I'm not matching up to why I say I believe Jesus. And he goes, good. Let's fix that. 
so that you will be found in the faith. That's the point. Just like we said God does to, did to the, to the Israelites through the prophets. When he told them, he pointed out their sins. Like, I just finished reading through Hosea again, and what a story. Like, he tells, God tells Hosea, if you're not familiar, God tells the prophet Hosea to go and marry a prostitute. And then she has kids, and, and he gives them these names like, not my people, and, and unwanted, and all these things. And one of them probably isn't even Hosea's kid, because the language makes it look like she had that child during her prostitution. And God tells Hosea to love her and to care for those kids and and to bring them in. And then she goes and she does it again. And she walks off again to the point where Hosea has to buy her back because she was sold off into slavery. And God says to Hosea, go and buy her for this. And he pays the amount. He brings her back home and God tells her to love her and to restore her. And then the rest of the book is about God saying, this is what I do for you, even though you play the whore. And it breaks me. And it's supposed to. Because then I look at my own life, the times that I've done that, and go, Jesus, why do you love me so much? Because my steadfast love endures forever. That's the point of all of that. We're just about done. If whoever's singing our closing can come up if they like. But I want us to put something in our pocket that we can take out and use on Monday. Today Sunday. We can use it on Monday. We can use it later today. Maybe we can use it during response time. I want to give us something that we can pull out in times of, uh, of need and reflect on. And that's it. We, were, we are to have the truth be real and alive in us, just as Titus did before he went to call out falsehood in Crete. See, we silence false teaching and false teachers because we know the truth and we want them to know the truth, right? But what that also means is that we silence the lies in our own life that the enemy has taught us. Because we have all believed lies. And some of us still believe many of them now. You're not loved. You did too much. You can't come back from that. No one likes you. You're not pretty enough. You're not smart enough. You're not strong enough. You're not enough. And on and on and on. We have so many lies that the devil has taught us that we've believed. And we have to first rebuke and correct the falsehoods that we've been taught because we want the truth to be known we need to kill the lies that we believe in our own lives and there's times where you're sitting there and you're just like oh i just i don't know i can't seem to get through this i don't know what i'm going to do and oh god oh, oh. david in psalm 42 5 writes why my soul, are you downcast? Why are you disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will praise him, my Savior and my God. Sometimes we have to correct ourselves. Then those times where, where we realize that we're the ones not matching up, that we're the ones who are the issue, we have to teach ourselves and go, why, my soul, are you downcast? What is your problem? 
You know who Jesus is. You've seen what he's done in your life. You've seen how he's moved over these many years. And you see how he's provided and taken care of you. And why would you think today is all of a sudden going to be different? And you tell yourself, put your hope in God. For I will yet praise him. And that starts to change something inside of us. That starts to change something so that when somebody else is struggling and we come to them and we're like, Hey, Paul, it's going to be okay. Jesus has got you. There's no stress here. He hears you say that to him and he goes, That's coming from a place of sincerity, of somebody who knows that truth inside of them. We first have to make the truth real in us. Let it be alive in us. Let it, let it bubble over all the time to the point where I don't care if somebody calls you ridiculous. Be ridiculous. Be so hopelessly fixated on Jesus that people are like, what is your problem? I'm like, Jesus is my problem. It's a good problem. He's always correcting me and loving me and bringing me back to the truth. And that's what we do. We correct falsehood so that the truth will be known and so that we will be people who are sound in the truth. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. I am so thankful that you correct me, that you, you point out the falsehood that I have, that you point out the lies that I believe in my own life because you do so so that the truth will be known. So that when I interpret the world around me, I see that my heart is, is hopefully turned towards you. You correct the lies that I believe and the falsehood that I think so that my faith and my works will match. I'm thankful that you do that for me, but you do it for all of us. At the same time, you were just that big. You were not limited by anything. Jesus, I just pray that as we take some time to just reflect and think about you. Lord, I, I get this picture of you of you writing down um, a list of lies. I just get this picture of you, you sitting and, and writing down a list of lies that, that some of us believe in, and giving us of our own slips of paper. That as we're taking time to worship, that you're, you're jotting down these lies that we've believed and you're, you, you're doing this and giving them to each one of us, like all who, who have something, so that we can look at them and reflect and go, I don't want that. And then we get to give it back to you. I pray that you reveal things to us so that we can give it back to you and walk in your truth, Jesus. We praise your name, Lord.